today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. Just for the listeners of this podcast, I'm going to clue you into the dirty secret of cardiology. Don't tell anybody. But the calcified plaques are not the ones that rupture and cause heart attack. And this is why I think when people have a zero calcium score, I'm still afraid. Because non-calcified plaque, or what we call soft plaque, you have not yet built those walls around the prisoner, so to speak. So you have all those enzymes that are trying to digest the walls. Those are the 20, 30, 40, 50% lesions that don't cause symptoms, that don't cause chest pain or shortness of breath or toothache or whatever symptom might be. Those are the ones that rupture. So that's where a calcium score alone, I mean, don't get me wrong, a zero calcium score is great, but you need to always do that in concert with, or at least in my clinical practice, what I did was always check it with markers of vascular inflammation because it's a very different thing to have a zero calcium score with normal markers of vascular inflammation than to have a zero calcium score with sky-high markers of vascular inflammation. Because if you have those sky-high markers, we've got some work to do still. Well, hello there. I'm Dr. Kate, your host for today. And today we've got an amazing guest for you, Dr. Sanjay Bodraj. Now, Dr. Bodraj is one of our educators at Rupa Health. He teaches the cardiometabolic section of our clinical decision guides for functional medicine lab testing bootcamp that we do in partnership with the Institute for Functional Medicine. It's happening in a few weeks. And so if you wanna learn more from Dr. B after listening today, make sure you go sign up for that if you're a practitioner. We have a lot to talk about. So this is actually gonna be a two part episode. In the first part, we're gonna talk about things like the ideal panel to ask your doctor for if you wanna find out your cardiovascular risk and if you wanna see if you're inflamed or have metabolic issues, or if your cholesterol is the bad kind or even oxidized. In the second part, we're gonna talk about lifestyle. How do you actually implement this? And we're gonna dive a little bit deeper into some of the testing. So do you benefit from a cardiovascular test like a calcium score? Stay tuned to figure that out. Dr. B's got the answers for you. He's one of my favorite people to talk to about cardiovascular health because he has such a cool way of describing things that really helps you remember them. More importantly, Dr. B is someone I trust and who's helped some of my family members over the years. He's a wonderful asset and you can enroll in his clinic, Well12Health, if you're looking to get the most advanced care available in cardiovascular medicine and stay healthy as long as you can. Let's get started. Dr. Sanjay Bodraj, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine podcast. Dr. Kate, thank you so much. It's so great to be here and thank you for having me on the podcast. You're one of our favorites at Rupa. I met you through our IFM bootcamp the first time and just watched you captivate an audience. And I learned your story about being an interventional cardiologist for 20 years and now running a functional medicine practice. And I'm so thrilled to have you here to teach us about cardiology today and metabolic health. But before we dive in, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you stand for. It's amazing that I was able to make lipids cool enough to kind of grab your attention. So I'm glad I was able to do that. But just like you said, so I have been an interventional cardiologist for about 20 years or so and reached that point in my career where I was doing everything. I was doing, so for those of you who don't know what an interventional cardiologist, there's a regular cardiologist who's following blood pressure, cholesterol, running stress tests and things. And I was the doctor that actually did cardiovascular procedures. So I did coronary angiograms, which is where we go in and take pictures of the arteries. And I was deploying stents, which are those little springs that you inflate into the artery walls to hold it open. I was doing heart valve procedures and called transcatheter valve replacement, where rather than doing open surgery, I was able to go in through the arteries and the legs and actually deploy a new heart valve in patients that couldn't get surgery or didn't want to have surgery. So I was doing some pretty high-level cardiovascular procedures 
But something always just didn't sit well with me was, why did we get here in the first place? What are the 10,000 steps before that two in the morning heart attack that we zigged when we should have zagged that would not have led us here? And so in quite a backwards way, and we can talk about that story here in a little bit, I fell into functional medicine and it was exactly what I was looking for. We all go to med school and we all have the same personal statement. I want to help people in some way, shape, or form. I want to create my own mark on this world. And I thought I did a pretty good job of it with procedures, but it never sat with me that people would come and be like, doc, I want to get off meds. I want to do something healthy. What do you got for me? And in med school, our nutrition education is embarrassing. I think I maybe had like 45 minutes of instruction in nutrition in the seven plus years that it took me to become a cardiologist. And that's just not enough. And that's really where I fell in love with functional medicine was really focusing on the nutrition and nutritional biochemistry, just making sense of how these micronutrients, these macronutrients, these you know, phytochemicals, all these things that we eat, how do they work inside the body and how can they optimize health? And I think that there's nowhere more important to this than cardiometabolics, because as we look at the statistics and whoever's watching this podcast, you know, obviously we're smart folks, but the numbers are staggering. I read that in England, for the first time, we've seen an uptick three years in a row of greater cardiovascular incidence. So more heart attacks, more strokes for the first time in 15 or 20 years. Metabolic diseases, particularly insulin resistance and diabetes are on the rise. One in three people in the United States over the age of 25 has either insulin resistance, diabetes, metabolic syndrome. And as a cardiologist, this scares me because when we look at blood vessels, I inherited patients from the 70s and 80s in the early part of my career. At that point, it was really the smoking that was the big deal. And I think we've done a great job from a public health standpoint in reducing smoking. But we see even worse pathology when we look inside the vessels of diabetics and long-term diabetics. Whereas with smokers, when you look at a coronary artery, you'll see a discrete lesion. So a nice little 90% blockage that I can put a stent in and high five and we're great in 20 minutes. With diabetes and insulin resistance, you really see this diffuse disease. So you take a long artery and there's just disease everywhere. And that's really scary because that doesn't leave us many options to fix. So getting back to my functional medicine epiphany, I realized, you know what? So much of this is diet. So much of this is lifestyle. Somebody in the cardiology space needs to learn more about this and preach the gospel of functional medicine. And that's kind of where I find myself. I love it. I'm curious, actually, like, was there a moment or a series of moments in a row that made you choose to go down this path? Well, you have a lot of wake-up calls, but the one that really shook me, well, two, two instances that shook me, but number one, the first one was my very first patient that I had at my job was a heart attack. She's still alive. Wonderful lady, fantastic. She looks like she would be like one of the characters on Sex in the City. Just a fabulous woman. Came in to another outside hospital, not my institution, said that she was feeling off, had some chest pain. And they kind of looked at her and said, you know, it's probably just anxiety. No big deal. Go home. And literally they told her, have a glass of red wine. It's probably anxiety. Go sleep it off. She knew something wasn't right. So she ended up coming to my hospital and her husband drove her, which for those of you in the audience, if you're thinking you have, might have a heart issue, never have a family member drive you, right? Always by ambulance. So she walked across the threshold of our emergency department and had a cardiac arrest right there, BTBF arrest. So chest compression, shocks, all that stuff that you see on TV. I brought her to the cardiac cath lab. She had a 100% blockage of her left anterior descending artery, what we call the LED, opened it up. She did great. 
10 years later, she sees me in follow-up. And I'm like, oh my gosh, for all of us as practitioners, there's certain patients when you see them on your schedule for the day, you're like, oh, I can't wait to catch up with that person. So I saw her and did the math and realized that when she had had her heart attack, she was actually three years younger than I was at that time. Meaning that she had her heart attack at 42, 10 years ago. I was 35 or whatever. And now I'm seeing her, I'm 45, but she had her heart attack when she was 42. And that kind of gave me a moment of pause to take my health seriously. And then that led me then to see my own doctor and I got my labs done for the first time because we all know doctors are the worst patients. I got my labs done and it was a hot mess. Liver enzymes off, my cholesterol was horrible. It's this genetic stuff being South Asian that I knew that was going to hit, but it all hit the fan at once. My blood pressure was crazy. This was in the middle of COVID. So eating like garbage, not exercising, not sleeping, stressed out all the time, watching the news, the world is going to end. People are storming the capital, Australian wildfires. All these things were happening. I was stressed out all the time. And my doctor said, you know, Sanjay, got all these things going on. Let's get you on these four medicines. For someone who's like a professional medicine pusher, I was like, whoa, we go from zero to four. That seems like a lot. Let me do my own thing. And I got the doctor eye roll, which unfortunately a lot of patients get like, all right, we're going to try diet and lifestyle. Let's see what happens. But that really kind of sealed my resolve. And I went back to the functional medicine training and really focused myself. So within eight weeks or so, made significant lifestyle diet changes just through diet, lifestyle alone, dropped 25 pounds. Of course, I'm a data nerd. So I actually had a DEXA scan done pre and post to check my visceral fat. My visceral fat went down by 60, 60%. And as this audience knows, that visceral fat is the fat that is inflammatory, that gives you these alterations and sex hormone binding globulin and leptin resistance, contributes to insulin resistance and all that stuff. And I credit it with really saving me from having a heart attack at age 50. And so now I want to do that for everybody. Let's heal everybody with the heart. That's awesome. And since then, you founded Well12. I want to get into that a lot at the end, but I want you to mention it now because it seems like you've taken all the research and all your clinical experience and packaged it into a program that's designed to help this work for everyone fast. Tell us about that. Yeah, so Well12 is my program. So www.well12.health is the website. So the program is really a very simple program, but you have to do it to do it. And one of the things that I love in medicine is coming up with nickel solutions to million-dollar problems. So we had these amazing antibodies against specific interleukins and this, that, and the other. But hey, how about we just learn how to sleep? How about we just learn how to chill out, how to breathe, how, to, how deep breathing affects us. Learn what are the proper foods to eat. Get garbage out of your diet and health naturally follows. So we can spend some time towards the end, but I've been doing this now for over a year, over 100 clients. And the benefits that I've seen from this functional medicine approach, from this anti-inflammatory diet, from just giving people a structure and a framework to follow changed my life. And so I'm just excited about all the good that we can bring to the world through functional medicine and just through teaching people how to approach life correctly. It's so great. And I love that you're making it so doable for people because you're so right. We all hear this stuff, but it's being able to do it every day long enough to make a difference. That's really the key. And I feel like you have some great sayings and tips and tricks and tools to help people really transform. Clearly worked for you. I needed to preface this interview by... I have a ton of bad 80s movies references and dad jokes. And those definitely creep into the Well 12 program as well. So if you have to Google anything that I asked, sorry about that. I can explain it real time. We love it. Give us all the jokes. 
what I want you to talk about next, because I think some people might have tuned out if they are thinking what I've heard sometimes in practice, which is, well, my parents didn't have a heart attack. There's no real like heart disease risk in my family. So this isn't something I need to worry about. And then on the other hand, we have people we've all known who seem super healthy. They're running all the time. They're eating all the right things and they end up with a heart attack. And so how would you know if you're someone who is at risk for heart disease? A lot of times the outsides don't match the inside. So getting back to that woman that I was talking about, my first heart attack patient, on the outside, she was not overweight, looked great. She did Pilates a couple of times a week. She smoked, oddly enough, but you really have to know your risks. I do a little bit of longevity medicine. And the first thing people ask, oh, doc, what supplement should I be on? You know, should I be jumping into ice water and then jumping in a sauna and all this stuff? And I say the first part of longevity is get your labs checked. <laughs> know what's going on with yourself. Everyone wants to be on NAD and they ask me about metformin and should I find rapamycin and all these highfalutin things. But hey, let's start out with the simple things. Let's make sure our blood pressure is under control. Let's look at our body composition because weight is an imperfect measure of health. So look at your body comp, look at your labs, make sure that we know what's going on on the inside because what our parents didn't have that we have, I think a lot more of are chemical exposures. And so when we look at that environmental toxicities that we have, BPA and PFAS and PFOS and all those kind of chemicals and all the things that we know and all the things that we don't know, we are not the same as our parents were. And if you think about it, my parents, well, probably not my parents, but maybe my grandparents, you know, full fat butter, all the things that now we think they shouldn't eat, but they seem to do pretty okay. So first thing to do is check your numbers. And this is where I think that conventional cardiology, at least, is a little bit lacking because now we have so much better data. We've got advanced lipid panels. We can look at oxidized LDL. You can look at glycosylated LDL. You can look at, at markers of vascular inflammation. And the cardiology community in general just isn't there yet. I remember when I was still practicing in my group practice and I was talking to a patient about their LDL particle number, which is not something that most cardiologists deal with. We deal with LDLC, which is LDL concentration. The difference there being that if you have a bunch of small particle LDLs, which are the more atherogenic, that can hide in LDLC. And I was mentioning this to one of my partners, and he just looked at me like I was crazy because that's just not part of the clinical practice. And cardiologists, just like really any subspecialty, we're all almost frozen in time with our training. Maybe we do some maintenance and certification work, study for your board exam every 10 years, whatever it is, but your snapshot, whenever your medical training era was. And I think that's where doctors who are functionally minded really excel because we're trying to stay with the cutting edge. We're trying to stay at the vanguard of medicine and that where biochemistry, basic science, and clinical medicine meet. That's where I really see the role of functional medicine. So getting back to lab markers, so ask for advanced lipid panels, ask for markers of vascular information. Another one that I love right now is urine microalbumin. What is urine microalbumin? Well, we all know about endothelial dysfunction and the disruption of the glycocalyx and, and how that's an early marker of vascular disease. Well, one of the most vascularized territories you have in your body is actually in your kidney. And so if you're starting to see early leaking of albumin, these microalbumins, then we see that there is some endothelial disruption in there. And believe it or not, I was at a conference just this weekend where an actual MD for the first time I've ever 
in all the conferences I've been to reference the glycocalyx, which to the functional medicine community has been something that we've been talking about for a few years. So again, I think that the functional community is really at the leading edge of clinical medicine a lot of times. And it's just this inertia from the conventional docs that they eventually get there, but it takes some time. So that's where people who are watching the podcast, patients who are watching the podcast, that's really where you have to advocate for yourselves. And if you can't find a doc that will do it, reach out to Rupa, reach out to me. We will help facilitate because our goal, I'm just speaking for Rupa here, but I think I can say this, our goal is just to make people better and we don't want you to die. So let's do the right work. Let's get the right information and let's help you live longer. Endothelial. The doctors who are listening may know what that means, but some people don't. So I want you to explain that. And then I want to take a deep dive into two things next that are going to help people refine that list of labs you talked about and know which ones they should get. But let's start with the endothelium. What is that? So imagine your artery, right? We're looking at the artery and it's a tube. And there's three layers on the tube. That's the makeup of an artery. So you have the outside called the adventitia, the middle part, which is called the media, and then the inside layer, which is called the intima. And then inside that intima, think of a layer of shag carpeting. And I don't know if you're, you're old enough, Dr. Kate, to remember what shag carpeting was, but it was brown, tan, rust, and white. Those were the four colors that at some point in the 70s and early 80s made sense for someone to put together in a carpet. But that's the layer on the inside of what your blood vessel looks like is you have the shag carpeting called the endothelium, which is a single cell thick layer of cells. And then on top of that, you have a few microns of this glycocalyx, which is a matrix of carbohydrates, of sugars actually, that helps signal intracellularly into the endothelium what's going on. It's almost like a weather antenna that sticks out there. So when we talk about endothelium, function. At one point in time, we thought this is just a very passive, just a bunch of cells, nothing really happens. But what we've learned over the years is that the endothelium is actually quite active, secreting growth factors, secreting chemoattractants for white blood cells and red blood cells and platelets and all of these different components of our body and secretes nitric oxide, which is a vasodilator. And as we get older, our ability to secrete or to synthesize nitric oxide gets worse. And so that leads to the quote-unquote hardening of arteries and hypertension. So the endothelium is this very live layer. I almost think of it like a coral reef layer on the inside of the blood vessels that we have to optimize to get true vascular health. And when it gets disrupted, then when you see tears in there, just like in shag carpeting in the high traffic areas, you see tears, you can get tears. And that's where these oxidized LDL particles, the bad cholesterol, the damaged bad cholesterol particles can translocate into the walls, lead to plaque. Enough of that plaque builds up and then digests the vessel wall and it ruptures. And that's what causes a heart attack. That's the physiology behind a heart attack or a stroke, depending on which the head and neck territory or the heart territory. So the endothelium is like your first line of defense against vascular disease. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. It's funny. I think of endothelial dysfunction as being similar to leaky gut. People think of leaky gut and they kind of get it. And they're like, okay, yeah, I've heard of that. And I'm like, it's leaky gut in your arteries. It's like leaky vessel. I like the shag carpeting reference, but leaky vessel works too. I want to go through your list of biomarkers that you want everyone to make sure that they get, the list of labs. And you actually teach practitioners this in our Institute for Functional Medicine Bootcamp, which I'm so thankful. But before we get into the big list that everybody needs to bring to their doctor, let's back up and talk about diagnoses. So if someone's listening, what are some things they might have already been diagnosed with that should raise their interests right now that they should really be paying attention? And some things I'm thinking about are like, if they've been told they have fatty liver, 
if they've been told they're insulin resistant or have type 2 diabetes, if they have hypertension, how do you counsel people to say, hey, if you've got these, you really need to pay attention to your metabolic and cardiovascular health? So before we even get into diagnosis, I like to talk about clinical scenarios. So the first thing is when you're in the shower, take a look down. If you can see your toes, you're great. If you can't see your toes and you got a big gut protruding, you're probably at risk for metabolic disease. So that's something to think about. And why is that? That's a preponderance of visceral fat. So if we have that central adiposity, it's not so much the subcutaneous, like the, the muffin top stuff that we get worried about, you know, that pinchable soft fat, but it's that fat inside the abdomen that leads to those metabolic derangements, the inflammation, the insulin resistance, leptin resistance. And that's the real sinister stuff that we need to address sooner rather than later. Another one that I talk about is fatigue. So I have a lot of people that just tell me, you know what, I'm just tired all the time. I wake up and I'm tired. I have to take a nap in the middle of the day. One of the clients in my metabolic program later on confessed to me that he would sneak out to his car and take an hour nap in the middle of the day because he was just so tired and that nap kind of went away. And what I think of that as, as mitochondrial disruption, I feel like, you know, we are probably not giving our mitochondria the nutrition that it needs to function correctly, to synthesize the ATP, to create energy, fatigue, shortness of breath, disproportionate shortness of breath to your degree of activity. Just that brain fog is another one that I think a lot of people experience. Just, I need to remember why aren't things coming back the way that they should. So those are some of the clinical scenarios. When we look at labs, I think number one, always start with age-appropriate labs and testing. Again, getting my longevity hat on, simple things are simple. So test your electrolytes, get your kidney function checked, your liver function checked. We'll talk about fatty liver in a moment, but get your liver function checked, get your blood counts drawn. Let's look at your mean corpuscular volume and look for vitamin deficiencies. Let's see your trend in platelets over time to see if maybe that's an inflammatory marker for you. Let's look at your white blood cells and see what is that nutritional status that your white blood cells may be indicating that is going on because high white blood cells are bad, low white blood cells might not be normal either. And then as we get into more metabolic markers, certainly a lipid profile. And if you don't have advanced lipids available, just get a basic lipid profile, which is your total cholesterol, your LDL, the bad cholesterol, your HDL, which I now term the less bad cholesterol, and then your triglycerides, which are a marker of carbohydrate and fat content in your blood. So those are the basics. And then another add-on, if you don't have access to an advanced lipid panel that you can do at most commercial labs is an apolipoprotein B, also called an ApoB, which I like because it's relatively inexpensive, very available even through the big box labs if you don't have access. But Rupa has really democratized that, so you should have access anywhere you are. But it's indicative of the atherogenic lipid particles, the bad cholesterol particles. That's apolipoprotein B is like a patch that it wears on its chest to tell you that I'm a bad player. Glycosylated hemoglobin, hemoglobin A1c, I think is still an important marker, imperfect though it is, because it's not giving us a real kind of understanding of the acute glucose effects, right? It's just kind of an average over 120 days or so because that's the span of time of a red blood cell, but that's a marker that I like. I mentioned urine microalbumin, which is an, or urine creatinine, uh, one of the UACR or urine microalbumin, one or the other, are both in the proper hands, good markers of renal function and impending renal dysfunction as well, as we talk about the endothelial disruption. And I think it's something that we're going to hear of more and more in the next few years as a marker of cardiovascular risk. So those are the top run with those from a cardiometabolic standpoint. So CBC, CMP, 
lipid panel. So CBP, CMP, your regular lipids, your advanced, hopefully advanced lipids, and then hemoglobin A1C and urine microalbumin. And add on ApoB guys at home who are writing this down next to your lipid panel, because if you're seeing a person who's not a functional medicine doctor, chances are when you say, can you check my lipids, they're going to run what's called like a standard lipid panel. They might not add some of the extra things that Dr. B talked about. And by the way, it's absolutely fine to ask. This is your life. So ask for the labs that you want. If they're taking blood, just say, this is what I want. Don't feel bad about it. And I love that you said that as a cardiologist, it's so interesting how many people tell me they're afraid to ask their doctor to order labs. I can see it, but as a doc, as a healer, I always want you to feel comfortable. And if you don't feel comfortable asking me a simple question like that, then I don't care what happens. This is not a therapeutic relationship. So if you don't have that vibe with your doctor, find someone that you vibe with. I tell people, I tell my patients, you got to feel like you could have a beer with your doctor. We're supposed to be like your buddies. I just have this really weird skill set and knowledge set. But other than that, we're just people. And you're going to respond so much better to someone that you trust and someone that you like to hang out with and someone that you always feel like, you know, it's like your high school principal and you have to be on your best behavior. That's not what this should be about. That's a brilliant piece of advice. And I think if your primary care doctor is not that for you and you like your primary care doc, you can always add another practitioner alongside your primary care doc that you can have these kind of conversations with. I practice in Southern California and we have a lot of patients who have naturopath doctors, right? And I'm kind of low-key jealous of naturopaths, to be honest with you. I wish I had some ND, MD hybrid because I think it's just, it's such a fascinating training and such a compliment really to what we do. Unfortunately, I think that older generation just sees it as competition and I see it more as collaboration. So I think you're going to get a lot more open-mindedness with a younger doc on this one. I'm not saying that all long-in-the-tooth docs are obstructionist or anything, but I just, I feel like there's, as we get younger, there's more appreciation for these other points of view and the other healing arts as well. Let's talk about a lipid panel for a second. A lot of people have heard you've got high cholesterol or you have high bad cholesterol or you've got high triglycerides. And so many people come home from the doc hearing that and they do one of two things. They either go, I gotta stop eating fat or... I got to stop eating sugar. And I think there's some nuance actually behind that that sometimes patients don't get taught. So can you tell us if someone came in and they had high cholesterol, high triglycerides, how would you talk with them about what it meant, what caused it, and how to bring those numbers down? And even more importantly, why does cholesterol and triglycerides matter for heart health? Why should we care? So somebody comes in, and I think it's important here to distinguish two groups of patients. So there's what's called primary prevention, and these are people that have never had a cardiovascular event. So it's someone like you or me who we have high cholesterol, but we've never had an event. Then there's the what's called secondary prevention group. These are people who've already had a heart attack, had heart bypass surgery, had stroke. So that's a separate group of people that we have to be more aggressive with. So let's put those folks aside and talk about primary prevention. So you're in your 30s or your 40s or early 50s and you say, you know what, I got to take care of myself. I'm going to go to the doctor on my birthday and you get a lipid panel done and something is off. So how do we approach that? The conventional medicine approach would be, my doctor said to me, here's four medicines, see you in six months. But that's not the right thing to do. That's not what our guidelines say. It's just as humans, not what we should be doing. Because this next phase of my career, these next chapters are really trying to optimize diet and lifestyle. And so that's the conversation I would have with that patient is, all right, tell me about your lifestyle. And it's not just exercise, it's sleep. 
Are you sleeping enough? What does your sleep look like? Tell me about your stress level. All these things as the root cause podcast folks know, that's inflammatory. And so inflammation, I think, is really what we need to be aiming for. Now, looking in the diet, and I think that demonizing one macro versus the other never gets you in a good place because you can't just eat protein. You can't just eat fat. You can't just eat carbs. You need everything in your diet. And so when people go on these extremes, then first of all, I don't think it's sustainable. But second, long-term, you would probably end up seeing some sort of nutritional deficiency that manifests in some other way, anxiety, depression, stress, all of these different things. And if you're looking to learn more about that, there's a wonderful lecture done by our very own Dr. Kate Koreshi that was just absolutely fascinating. I was sitting there eating popcorn, just waiting for the next word out of her mouth. It was absolutely amazing. But let's focus on diet lifestyle issues first. So really drilling down into diet. Fast food is a necessary evil sometimes. Look, I've got triplet girls and they're in sports and this, that, and the other. And I get it. Like it would be lovely if I could just go out to my garden and pick the tomatoes that I grew from a seed with my organic water sourced from unicorn tears and all this stuff. But we have to create change in the framework of reality. And so maybe that means, and I tell people, you get if you're eating three meals a day, so that's 21 meals a week, you get two wild cards, I call them, where you can just go out to a restaurant, you can have fast food, whatever. But the rest of the time, I want you to eat compliant. So what does that mean? So we really kind of drill down on what are the proper meats, what are the proper vegetables, getting ultra-processed foods out of the diet. You'll love this. I was reading an article yesterday where they called ultra-processed food, pre-digested food. Gross. That definitely made me never want to eat ultra-processed food. <laughs> that just sounds like some sort of crazy elemental diet. So let's drill down into what your diet looks like and let's triage. What are the main things that we can do? Because I don't think a busy mom of three kids can go an hour walking on a treadmill for an hour five times a week. That's not practical. So I like to be tactical about how I deploy these wellness initiatives and start with the low-hanging fruit. Let's see if maybe we can sub out French fries and sub in salads. Let's see if we can identify some sort of a very pro-inflammatory food that we can get out of your diet. Let's look at your sleep habits and say, hey, you know what? Maybe you don't need to watch four episodes of that Netflix show every night. Maybe let's prioritize sleep for two weeks and let's see how your brain feels. Let's give your brain that time for recovery. Let's do box breathing at every stoplight. Every time you're at a red light, let's do box breathing for two minutes or 30 seconds or whatever it takes to kind of tone down that sympathetic tone, get your heart rate variability up. Those are the lifestyle and diet changes that I would start with in clinical practice. And then giving people a, a structure and a framework to make that change because unless I can tell you, you know, run a marathon, 26.2 miles, it can be done. But unless you're training and ramping up correctly, it's really hard to just slap on a pair of shoes and go run a marathon. So doctors need to take the time to give that structure framework. And that is why I honestly think it never gets done. Because in a clinical encounter, you're looking at the computer screen out of a 15-minute clinical encounter. We have so much documentation that we need to do. It's like 12 minutes of looking at the computer and then maybe two minutes at most actually engaging with the person in front of you. So I think that really kind of engaging this diet and lifestyle change becomes super important and so beneficial for folks. So it sounds like your conversation with clients was not sugar is causing your high cholesterol or fat is causing your high cholesterol. It's much more holistic than that. Yeah. And carbohydrate leads to triglyceride biochemically. If you're looking at like in a lipid panel, for instance, what is the main driver of triglycerides? Well, it's carbs. And what's the one thing that you can change the quickest? 
Go on a low-carb diet, you'll see those triglycerides fall within a week. You were talking about cholesterol. The dietary contribution of cholesterol is actually not that much. So when we talk about eggs are horrible for you and all that stuff, all this language that we we're getting about 10 or 15 years ago, it's actually not that bad. I mean, sure, if you're eating a dozen eggs a day, maybe. But for most people, what my belief is, it's really inflammation that drives that. LDL and, and the lipids are an acute phase reactive, so they react to inflammation. And as I read the literature and we're getting more and more about like oxidized LDL and damaged LDL particles, I wonder if we're right for the wrong reasons when you talk about LDL. There's definitely association with higher LDL, higher cardiovascular events, but I think that that's probably if we had the science 20 years ago when a lot of those trials were done, but now we have the science looking at damaged LDL particles, oxidized LDL particles, that's really what's driving atherosclerosis and vascular events. And what drives that oxidation? Well, ultra-processed foods, inflammation, leaky gut, leaky vessel, too much sugar in your diet, all of that stuff drives that oxidation. And when I talk to patients, I say it's like you're caramelizing your insides. That's a pretty big visual. So when you caramelize these insides, yeah, your body reacts to them. There's an immunogenicity associated, you know, there's an immune response associated with anything that's damaged in your body. And cholesterol particles are no different. The only problem is to sequester those cholesterol particles, they get packed into the blood vessel wall, into that media of the blood vessel, and that leads to vascular events. So how do we stop the insanity? Yeah, we've got medicines and anti-TNF and anti-IL-1 and all that stuff, but hey, let's just start with eating the right things and getting the garbage out of our diet and really moving and doing simple things that we're supposed to do that we're designed to do. So are there any natural interventions that you would recommend that people consider for lowering cholesterol? And let me give you an example of what I'm thinking. Fiber is so overlooked, I feel like, in a lot of these conversations. If someone says, like, okay, yeah, Dr. B, I'll eat more plants, and I'll look at your list of foods I'm supposed to eat, and I'll try to only eat fast food two times a week, but aren't there any supplements? Aren't there any things I can add to my water? How do you talk to them about that? I think fiber has a role, and the reason fiber has a role is that so much cholesterol is actually circulated in your gut through bile. So bile salts are made out of cholesterol. And so there's this what's called enterohepatic circulation. So from the liver to the gut, the circulation of cholesterol that gets reabsorbed. So when you talk about fiber, something like cholestyramine, which is a bile acid sequestrant, essentially what you're doing is just you're binding up that bile salt so it can't get reabsorbed and then you're shifting the cholesterol back to bile production as opposed to floating in your bloodstream and it does great. But just that I think that the clinical benefit is underwhelming in comparison to some of the other cholesterol medications. And so when all you're doing is treating a number, as most doctors do, and somebody goes on fiber, it might move five or six points, which is underwhelming. But we know that fiber has so many other benefits for you, the prebiotics and feeding the beneficial bacteria and regulating bowel movements and all these great other things. But I think in the cardiovascular circles, because it's seen as an inefficient therapy for cholesterol, it's just not used very much. But unless you're eating rope all the time, I don't think anyone has enough fiber in their diet. Another one that I'm a big fan of is berberine. I've had some hyper responders to berberine. I think of it as this just metabolically gifted supplement that helps balance lipids, helps balance blood sugar. It has an AMPK mechanism similar to metformin. So you see some blood sugar regulation out of it, rebalancing the microbiome. I don't think you can go wrong with berberine. 
Bergamot is another one that I used a lot in clinical practice. So I always started with berberine, but if I couldn't get them there, I would add a bergamot supplement in there as well. There's always something new coming up. There's now these probiotics that people are touting and truth be told, I'm kind of learning about these, but it's like a designer probiotic to help with vascular health. And I say, why not? Because at some point when you think of the microbiome, are we running it or is it running us when you think of the dopamine and the serotonin and all the things that it secretes and creates? And in the traditional cardiovascular literature, there is actually in our Journal of American College of Cardiology, I remember probably about two or three years ago, there's an article discussing the microbiome in heart failure. And I was very proud of the American College of Cardiology for publishing that. But I think we'll see more of these therapeutic designer prebiotics for all sorts of different cardiovascular conditions. Because again, I think it's driven a lot by inflammation. So balance the gut, balance the inflammation, save the body. What do you think about red yeast rice? So I will say I had one client come in who did not want to go on statins, really didn't, but had a total cholesterol of almost 300, which is pretty high. So we put her on high-dose red yeast rice, CoQ10, tons of fiber, tons of antioxidants, lots of movement, because we know that exercise can help shift some of your more oxidated or LDL cholesterol over to HDL, which is, we think, a little healthier for your heart. And her cholesterol dropped 90 points in a couple of weeks. Sounds like that was like a nuclear bomb that we put on her. I mean, red yeast rice, I tell people, it's a statin. It's a natural occurring statin. And so that's like someone saying, well, I'm alcoholic, I don't drink, but I'll have a whiskey. If you're really truly worried about statins, and not to say that there's not concerns for statin drugs, because certainly there are, but I had people all the time that said, you know, I don't want to be in a statin, but I take 10 pills of red yeast rice. And when I told them, well, if you look at the active compound, that's where statins were derived from. Lobostatin was like the original statin that was derived from red yeast rice. They look at me like I'm from Mars. They just don't believe it. And I think so many of our medicines are plant-based, so that's great. But at the same time, sometimes you have to treat the mentality as opposed to treating the medical condition as a provider. And if somebody says, when I look at the bottle of statin and my muscle aches, but I can take a thousand milligrams of red yeast rice and I do just fine. Look, if it's working, it's working. And the only thing I caution is that we just don't have the literature. So I can't tell you if you're on red yeast rice, that's going to lead to a 2.6% risk of cardiovascular events or whatever that number is, right? I just pulled that number out of the air. But look, if it works, it works for people. And you have to meet people where they're at. So I've had so many patients over the years that they didn't want to be on a medication. And I said, okay, we'll try it your way for a while. And, and we worked with the natural medicines and the statins and things. And then eventually, if they were where they needed to be, great. But at the same time, as a practitioner, and I kind of toe that line of functional and conventional, it's like a ping pong ball sometimes bouncing back and forth, particularly in that secondary prevention population that I mentioned, those people who have had cardiovascular events, you got to do what you got to do. And so if they're not going to take a statin, but they take a red yeast rice, you just give them the risks and the benefits. And these are big boys and big girls. They can make that decision on their own. But I think the wrong thing to do is just force feed somebody meds. That's just never right. When you would prescribe statins, would you also prescribe a CoQ10 supplement? And can you tell our listeners why if you did? Yeah, so statins naturally deplete coenzyme Q10. So statins work on this enzyme HMG-CoA reductase, which is in the cholesterol synthesis pathway. And I'd have PTSD and I might go into seizure if I talk about biochemistry or anything more than that. But it depletes CoQ10. 
Coach Q10 also co-factor. It's in like everything. It's ubiquitous. It's literally like named. It's everywhere. So you definitely need it. So some people will feel muscle aches and pains or they just feel off with CoQ10. There was a time in, I want to say like the late 90s, early 2000s, where it was standard of care to give a CoQ10 supplement with a statin anytime. And, and people seem to do okay. And for whatever reason, that trailed off, partly because there were some studies that showed that the actual CoQ10 content of supplements was so variable that we weren't sure what they were getting. So the actual content of the CoQ10 supplementation was variable. And so you weren't really sure what you were giving patients. Now, rather than giving it to everybody, I give it more purposefully. It was really cool. I was like looking through the literature the other day and there was a meta-analysis of studies on CoQ10 and fatigue. And they found that there was a statistically significant increase in energy when people would take CoQ10 if they were fatigued. And I thought that was really neat because it's just a nutrient. And it totally makes sense based on the biochemistry. You're like, you literally need it to create ATP in your body. Like, why don't we think about it more in medicine? Like, we think about it with statins. Well, I'll tell you why, because that's buried away in biochemistry in first year of medical school, and you just see it as something that's not relevant to clinical practice, when in fact, it's the most relevant thing in clinical practice. Let me interview you for a second here and talk to you about micronutrients and health. And like I said, for those of you who haven't seen it, an absolutely fascinating, eye-opening lecture. But what are some of the micronutrients and the vitamins that you think are most absent in our diets that we really need to either get through fortification or supplementation? Because I was surprised by those numbers that you spit out there. What I always quote in my presentations is actually NHANES data. And so according to NHANES, the top nutrient deficiencies are B6, iron, vitamin D, B12, folate at a minimum. And so I think anything with a B, you can just assume is related to energy in the body in some way. B6 in particular is needed to make dopamine and adrenaline. And so I always bring that up when I'm talking about depression or ADHD or PMS even. So I think those are, are critically important. What I think we probably aren't measuring correctly, we're just postulating, guys, if you're listening to this. I always survey the docs that I'm teaching about this, and I go, what do you guys think are the top nutrient deficiencies? And when I'm talking to functional medicine docs, they always say CoQ10, magnesium. They bring up some of the micronutrients that we tend to see people benefit from in clinical practice. And it makes me think that at a national level, when we're doing these surveys, we're probably not catching these deficiencies because we just may not be measuring them correctly. I have a feeling if we actually screened for CoQ10 inadequacy, we'd probably find a lot of it. So what we have the data on is the Bs and some of the minerals and definitely vitamin D. And a lot of the foods that are high in these nutrients are plant foods or organ meats, which generally are high in many nutrients at once. So this is where, again, if you're part of those presentations, like you'll just be like, this lady is pushing liver and oysters so hard. Like what? She's an naturopathic doctor. She's supposed to be talking about plants. But when you look at the top source of the nutrients, which comes from the NIH, again, tax dollars are paying for this. These tables of nutrients are like, if you want to get the top food source of these vitamins, eat beef liver. If you want the top food source of zinc and copper, eat oysters. And it's because other mammals tend to store these nutrients in their organs. And so when we eat their organs, we get these nutrients. So 
it all kind of comes together. When you study nutrients and what they do in the body and then the top food sources of those nutrients, you end up with a very short list of foods that if you just consume them regularly, you're likely to be replete. And it's the same list of foods that you talk about in Well 12. And how many of those foods come in a foil bag or a box? Well, we've evolved up until this point. And we've really only had processed foods for the last 50 years. And so before that, we had to get them somehow. Again, when you start to read these lists of nutrients and you go, huh, fully 8% of Americans are deficient in vitamin D. And that's really interesting. You need like a certain amount per day. And only cod liver oil, two tablespoons a day would give you enough. You logically start to think, how did people survive before supplements and fortified food? And then you realize, oh, because they were eating these traditional foods, they were eating beef liver. They were eating cod liver. This is where I feel like there must have been like aliens that came down to instruct the first humans how to eat or something. For the South Asian, like the Indian, so the Indian diet, turmeric, garam masala. One of the first IFM lectures I went to was like, oh my God, I eat Indian food. I should be invincible. It's got all these curcumins and all these things, right? It's amazing. For a population of people that is so at risk for vascular health, it is amazing to me that the foods that we naturally eat are so high in like the antioxidants, these anti-inflammatory compounds, and even more so the combinations. So rice is an imperfect protein, beans incomplete. You put them together, rice and beans. This can't just happen by accident. I've been meaning to ask you this. We get a lot of questions about LPA, like this emerging aspect of the science where we've got the biomarker, but we don't know what to do with it. Tell people at home, what's LPA? Why might they have heard of it? What do you do if it's high? So let's maybe back up because I think you had mentioned ApoB as well. And I just, let's talk about lipoproteins for a little bit here. When you look under a microscope, at these particles. It's not written LDL or HDL on there. So what we look for are like cell surface proteins. So you've got the little cellular structure and you look for things on the cells to say, oh, that has this thing that has apolipoprotein B. Therefore, that is an LDL particle that has apolipoprotein A. Therefore, that's an HDL particle. So there's tons of these things. And even some species, there's ApoB48, ApoB100, there's apolipoprotein A, A3, A1, all of these different things. And so one of these that's come up more recently is LP little a, lipoprotein little a which is different than LPPLA1, which is a marker of vascular inflammation. And you can get lost in the alphabet soup of these names. But LP little a is a cell surface protein on LDL particles, which are the atherogenic particles, which makes it super atherogenic. So I think in one of my IFM lectures, I said, it's, if you see like somebody with a teardrop tattoo, you know, that's a bad player. Shout out to all my teardrop tattoo folks on there. But I grew up with a very conservative Indian mom. And she said, anyone with a tattoo is bad, right? Now it's a little bit different. So if you've got this little A marker, it suggests that your LDL particles have a much more atherogenic potential. They are much more likely to cause plaque. And the problem is, is that we know about the existence before we have a therapeutic. So as you very correctly asserted, is this is now an emerging risk factor. It's an emerging particle that if you're seeing someone who is watching the, the Root Medicine Cause podcast or is ahead of the game here, they're going to be able to check that LP little a. Problem is right now is that we don't have a direct therapeutic for it. So there's not like a medicine that you can take. Or for that matter, we're not even sure yet with 100% certainty what the outcome of bringing LP little a down will be. 
So whenever we see a, a medicine like this come into clinical use, right, there's two things you want to do. Number one, does it change the biomarker of interest? And often that's the first study, you know, it's a phase three study or something that's done. But then we want to look then kind of beyond that is when you do then change that biomarker of interest, are you seeing a difference in mortality or heart events, heart attack, stroke, fatal MI, non-fatal MI, whatever, you know, we call that major adverse cardiac events, coronary events in the cardiology literature. So Right now, there, I think, are three medications in clinical trial. One was reported, I think, a few months ago at American Heart Association showing that you can change LP little a. We just don't know what that means. And so I, I'll go back because these are silver hairs of wisdom here. So going back a few years that they found, I think, in a village outside of Milan, Italy, it was one of these blue zone places that people lived forever. And they realized that they had a different type of HDL, an APOA. I think it was APOA Milano is what they called it. And so humans being what they are and scientists being as smart as they are, they said, all right, well, if these guys have they live forever, let's just make a ton of this and inject it into people and these people will live forever. Problem is that's not what happened. So people who had the APOA Milano protein injected actually died faster than, so they had to stop the clinical trial. And so that's where I'm always cautious with these lipoprotein, the next great thing, because there's always a next great thing. And there's an LPX, by the way, which just sounds awesome. Like I want that hat and that t-shirt, but there's always the lipoprotein. So we just need to see, you know, number one, we recognize that it exists, so that's great. But now that we change it, is that leading to an improvement in outcomes? And so those studies are being done. They're not all reported yet, but the lipid community is watching with bated breath as to what's going to happen. So if you do check it and it's elevated, then let's talk about what to do there. Because if you check it and it's elevated and you're like, oh my God, I'm going to die. I have to get my will in order and I'm just going to get a bunch of credit cards, max them out and go live on an island somewhere. No, you can best you can do is actually to optimize your traditional risk factors. So let's talk about exercise. Let's talk about eating. Let's talk about getting your cholesterol under control, whether that's through diet and exercise, supplementation, or at that point, if you have a really high LDL, this is where I have to put my conventional functional hat off, conventional hat on. If you have a really high cardiovascular risk, then maybe you need an advanced lipid medication like either a statin or some of these other injectables that are available to really drive down that cardiovascular risk. It's interesting. So my dad won't mind me talking about him. So my dad's an engineer, brilliant, call him Dr. Dad, because since retiring, he has become obsessed with functional medicine. So he's in all his biomarkers and he's like, Kate, LPA, it's elevated. Is he a mechanical engineer by any chance or electrical? Electromechanical. I always knew the electrical and mechanical engineers in my clinical practice because they would just come with like reams and reams of data, very data-driven. So data-driven. He's like, LPA is high, what should I do? And I'm like, every other one of your biomarkers is normal. But when they are not, you need to take it more seriously. The analogy we used was having really high LPA is going to make a two-alarm fire a four-alarm fire for you. So when your doctor does tell you, hey, your cholesterol is elevated, your blood pressure is elevated, you're not exercising enough, you're not sleeping well, you need to treat that as double the level of concern you might normally have. As, and that is not a clinically proven analogy, folks at home, but just... If everything else is normal and fine and optimal and healthy, don't waste your time feeling stressed about the LPA. Stay on top of your biomarkers, stay on top of your risk, stay in conversation with your doctor, but don't walk around feeling afraid. So it's like the serenity prayer. Control the things that you can control and get peace with what you can't control. And that really goes for a lot of these screening tests. So carotid interval medial thickness, coronary calcium scores. When it's there, it's there. So look, optimize what you can. 
again, getting back to diet and lifestyle, it's amazing what diet and lifestyle alone can change. There is this great study done by this Dr. Amit Kara, K-H-E-R-A from New England Journal of Medicine in 2016, that was really one of the eye-opening studies for me when I really was going through this crisis of conscience as to what can I do from diet and lifestyle. So this guy, he's a cardiac geneticist and did what's called a genome-wide association study. And so he looked at 38 markers of cardiovascular risk. So 38 genes, if you have them, they put your risk and put these people in buckets of low, intermediate, and high risk. Easy. You have like 34 of the 38 genes or whatever the numbers were, you're in the high risk, you have zero, whatever your low risk. But then he further stratified them by lifestyle. Did they exercise on a regular basis? Were they sleeping appropriately? Were they smoking? Were they eating 50% of the meals of plants? Just very simple stuff and further substratified them and got some pretty cool results. Unsurprisingly, the people who had the blessed genetics and the most favorable lifestyle did great. I think it was something like a 2 or 3% risk over 10 years. The people who had the worst genetics and the worst lifestyle, unsurprising, did the worst. I think theirs was a 10.7% risk. But the magic was in that group of folks who had the high genetic risk, but the favorable lifestyle. So we're talking about with your dad, controlling the things that you can control. And what happened with those guys? Well, bad genes, but good lifestyle, you actually take that risk from, I think it was 10.7 to 5.1. So you're decreasing that risk by 50%. But the way the stats worked out is that now with the standard error bars, you're indistinguishable from that blessed, genetic, great lifestyle folks. So I had that graph on my desktop in my clinic all the time and I would show it to patients and I call it the weirdest pep talk you've ever had because the intent of that is, look, you have the heart disease in your family, you have all this stuff. Yeah, you know what? You can't go back and choose different parents, but what you can do is choose how you live tomorrow and how you live today and make those lifestyle changes and marginalize whatever risk you can and optimize whatever you can with what you got and don't stress out about if you know that you're doing everything that you can do, nobody in the history of humanity has been immortal, to my knowledge. So we all eventually pass away from something, but don't obsess about it. Don't let your obsession with living forever affect your life today because people get so obsessed about this. And we want to bring joy and happiness and conversations about things going on in your life other than his LP little A and that his blood pressure was 121 in the morning, 122 in the afternoon, and 120 in the evening. These are the sorts of discussions I had with my mechanical engineer client or patients was that, look, there's a little bit of variance. You're an engineer. There's change here, you know, standard error, but do what you can, right? But that means don't do nothing, do something. And if you can do everything, but start by starting and don't get so in this analysis paralysis mode that 10 years go by before you go out for a walk. You mentioned actually calcium score, the looking at your carotid arteries. People are doing these now without their doctors. Like you can kind of go get these. You can get them on Groupon here in Orange County. Somebody came with me and they said, oh, I got a Groupon. And I was like, that's still a website? I think of that like I'm going to go skydiving or something. And there's certain things you want to pay full price for. And I think skydiving would be one of those. But actually, a Groupon for a calcium score is probably not that bad of a deal. But you want to talk about calcium scores for a little bit here? I would love to do that because I think people hear about it. They're fascinated, but they're kind of scared. And they don't know if they need it or not. So yeah, tell us, what is it? So a coronary calcium score is a low-dose CT scan that's done of the chest, of the actual arteries of the heart. And why I like it, as opposed to a risk calculator, so there's something called the ASCVD risk score, is that it's really, it gives you an idea of what's going on inside you as an individual. So I can see when I had my calcium score done, what my heart looked like. And if you want to talk about something that lights a fire under your butt, 
that will do it. So where does this calcium come from? So getting back to the top of the conversation about the adventitia media and intima, when you talk about plaque, what happens is you get the leaky vessel, as we talked about, through the endothelium and these damaged LDL particles, these cholesterol particles that sequester inside the blood vessel wall in that space between the intima and the media. And when you get all those bad players together, what they do then is try to secrete enzymes or inflammatory markers that lead to disruption of the blood vessel architecture. And actually, for lack of a better word, try to digest it. So all these interleukins and matrix metalloproteinases and all of these different things are trying to eat at your blood vessel wall, which is an incredibly bad idea. You don't want a hole in your artery. So what the body then does is it creates a moat around it or builds a wall around the prisoners, if you will, with calcium. So that's this coronary calcium score then kind of tries to quantify how much calcium you've got. So when we do the CT scan, calcium shows up white. And so we can take measurements and then you get compared to an age-matched cohort of individuals. And we see based on your age and gender, you fall in the 50%, meaning your average, you've got about as much calcium as we'd expect, or you're amazing, you've got 0% calcium, you're in the 0 percentile, or you're in the 99th percentile, meaning that you've got a heart age, if you will, of 90-year-old person, even though you're 47 years old. So that acts as some motivation. But again, I think it's good because it gives you an idea of actually what's happening. Similarly, with internal medial thickness, you're looking at that media, that middle layer of the artery to kind of see the thickness as a marker of how much stuff is in there, what the atherosclerotic burden might be. So they're important tests to have, but just for the listeners of this podcast, I'm going to clue you into the dirty secret of cardiology. Don't tell anybody. But... The calcified plaques are not the ones that rupture and cause heart attack. And this is why I think when people have a zero calcium score, I'm still afraid. Because non-calcified plaque, or what we call soft plaque, you have not yet built those walls around the prisoner, so to speak. So you have all those enzymes that are trying to digest the walls. Those are the 20, 30, 40% lesions that don't cause symptoms that don't cause chest pain or shortness of breath or toothache or whatever a symptom might be, those are the ones that rupture. So that's where a calcium score alone, I mean, don't get me wrong, a zero calcium score is great, but you need to always do that in concert with, or at least in my clinical practice, what I did was always check it with markers of vascular inflammation because it's a very different thing to have a zero calcium score with normal markers of vascular inflammation than to have a zero calcium score with sky-high markers of vascular inflammation. Because if you have those sky-high markers, we've got some work to do still. So it's an important test. It's a readily available, easy test to get, probably coming to your drugstore near you or whatever it might be. But as with anything, you need to know how to interpret it correctly. And I think that's where sometimes people get that false sense of security if they have a zero score because you can still have non-calcified plaque and that's the stuff that you really need to watch out for. But on the flip side, that's also the plaque that is really responsive to dietary and lifestyle changes, right? So eat better, exercise more, and reduce your inflammatory burden and you see those vascular inflammation markers go down and people do great. Okay, we're gonna call it here for part one and come back with part two in a few days. Stay tuned. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. We have one quick favor to ask you before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? Our whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing and we appreciate it so much. We'll catch you next time on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast.